Hello, and welcome to Research Software Engineering Stories. This episode of RSE Stories is brought to you from the UK and Europe, in collaboration with the Society of Research Software Engineering in the UK. My name is Peter Schmidt, I'm a Research Software Engineer at the University College of London, and I will be your host for this episode. In this episode, I meet with Anna Cristalli from the University of Sheffield in the UK. Anna's background is in marine biology, and she has been a UK EPSRC Fellow in Research Software Engineering. However, many will probably know her from her work in the R community, ReproHack and R Open Science. Hi Anna, and welcome to RSE Stories. Anna, could you start by giving us an overview of your background and how you got into Research Software Engineering? Uh, sure. Hello, Peter, and thanks very much for having me. So yeah, my my path to RSE has been a somewhat convoluted one. So my, my academic background is in marine biology, though I got my uh, bachelor's in marine biology and oceanography at Plymouth University. I think I started as, as many aspiring young marine biologists, you know, I wanted to save the dolphins and had a bit of an obsession with sharks and stuff. Until one day someone stuck a petri dish of zooplankton under my nose, under a microscope. And yeah, after that, I, I sort of became uh, totally fascinated with these um, tiny little alien looking creatures. And, and their, their fascinating ecology as well and how that was sort of linked to large ocean scale processes, which I got from the oceanography aspect of the degree. So I really enjoyed that. Then I, I moved to uh, University of Sheffield for my PhD in marine macroecology. That was supposed to be on birds originally, but um, I managed to convince my supervisor to work on plankton. But that is also where I got my first exposure to R. Programming in R was pretty much all I wanted to do after that. After my PhD, I sort of freelanced for a bit at what I would call like a research data scientist. So I was doing all the fun bits that I really loved about research, which was mainly R. <laughs> That's when I started learning more about um, open science and reproducibility, especially through participating in the Mozilla Science. It was then the Mozilla Science Lab, uh, and they were doing the open leadership training. So I was part of the, their first cohort. At that time, the, the sort of new role of the research software engineer was coming onto the scene. And yeah, when I heard about it, it, it sort of became very clear that that's what I wanted to do. I was quite lucky because Sheffield got two fellows from the, the first round of the EPSRC fellowship. And so I managed to get hired by Mike Croucher, part of his fellowship in 2017. And yeah, I've been there ever since. It has been strange at times for me because I don't have a formal computer science background. So, you know, I've not been programming since I was a teenager and there's definitely basic concepts and terminology that I still don't know very well. You know, sometimes the conversation in the office is a bit over my head. What I say is my team is super supportive and generous uh, with their knowledge. In some ways, I feel still quite close to the experience of like non-computer science researchers. And I think having that on a research software engineering team is, is good. It's a benefit. So if anyone is like me, you know, not a formal CS background and thinking that it might be a research software engineer, I would say, go for it. You know, you sort of, you know, if it's the right choice for you. 
Before we go a little bit further into software engineering, I'm quite fascinated about marine macroecology. That sounds like a very fascinating field. Could you tell us what area you worked on? So macroecology is basically the examination of like large-scale statistical patterns and ecological systems. It's kind of like almost complex systems research in ecology. Um, and what, what I was focusing on is the abundance-occupancy relationship in zooplankton. And, and this relationship sort of relates to the regional level sort of spatial organization of species. But basically, to model this relationship, you need gridded data of uh, occurrence and abundance, right? So maps where a species is present and, and the abundance uh, at, at different locations. The data set we were using were from the Continuous Plankton Recorder Survey. So this is a really cool data set. It's one of the largest and oldest ecological survey data sets in the world. So the device that collects the, the plankton it was developed by this guy called Sir, Sir Alistair Hardy in the 30s. Um, and it hasn't changed since then, the actual device. And it's basically this torpedo-shaped cassette, in essence, that you gets thrown overboard and then towed behind a ship. And inside it is this reel of silk, and that's where the plankton is collected. And that the silk gets reeled into formalin chamber according to the ship's speed. And then when they're done, they send a device back to the lab. The silk will be unreeled, and you might have like the whole of the North Atlantic on one silk. It's really cool. And that's when it gets sectioned and the organisms ID'd and enumerated. The success of this survey is a result of being able to give it to ships of opportunity, like ferries and cargo ships. And for marine sciences, sampling at sea is the most expensive part of it. So that's why it was successful, but it means that it's not really standardized. So getting from these tow lines to a gridded map, that was the biggest challenge, really. That underpinned everything else we wanted to do. Most of the previous methods on that data use spatial interpolation, but that doesn't really take into account differences in the environment. Um, so we wanted to take more of a species distribution modeling approach and incorporate environmental data. That meant bringing in satellite data like temperature, chlorophyll A, um, and especially these really cool derived maps of uh, hydrographic front intensity. Oh, what's that? They, they take normal satellite data, put this algorithm over it to find sharp discontinuities in temperature, chlorophyll A, or, or what have you. And that normally signifies that there's a hydrographic front there. So there's structure in the ocean. And this obviously, you know, plankton, they can't really locate, you know, they're, they're at the whim of the ocean, if you like. So these hydrographic fronts it should affect their distribution. So those were really the software challenges. They were ma mainly sort of data munging, like large data sets and different types of data. The biggest one being sort of spatially matching the survey data to the satellite data. And then a lot of mapping and plotting. Those, I would say, were the, the sort of main software challenges we faced. Do we see in the survey any change in terms of what people now talk, the impact of humans on the planet? In terms of climate oh, change, yes. does it have any impact? This data set has been proposed to be used as indicators of change. But it's quite complicated change. So 
yeah, uh, there's a lot of literature on this data set, so it's it's hard to encompass it all. But they're great indicators of change plankton, and they definitely uh, have been used. Let's move back a little bit into software engineering. So the R programming language is what you mentioned, and it plays an important part in your work. What is it that makes R special for you, and what is it that interests you in it? I mean, if I'm honest, it's the first language I learned, and really it's the only one I know well. So <laughs> I'll always have a, a, a soft spot for it. I think more than anything, it was the programming itself that was a revelation to me, especially sort of writing functions and packages. I just found it really awesome to be able to build like cool custom data crunching machines. But back to R, well, I think it's, it's really a great data science tool. I do like how uh, mm. using R, I've I've sort of learned a lot about other programming aspects. Yeah, I love R itself, but I love how it teaches me about other stuff as well. Another strength about R, I'd say, is that it's backed by a, a sort of really welcoming and generous community. And that really helps, you know, new users learn, but then also all users continue to develop. To be Fair, since I've moved to the computer science department, I've definitely had people make fun of R. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Well, they say it's not a real programming language. You know, it, to be fair, it doesn't bother me because there isn't a single thing that I wanted to do that I haven't been able to do. Ultimately, a, a lot of our researchers depend on R. You know, I feel it's a language that RSC teams at least should uh, be able to support. I think you made a quite an important point there with the community aspect of it and the fact that there is a lot of support, mm -hmm. that it's freely available. I think it has yeah. that in common with Python as well yeah. and other languages like Julia. Yes. And I think that really makes the success of a programming language and a technology stack that it's not a closed shop. I'm such a proponent of open source that I forgot to even mention that. Yeah, so yeah, of course, it's, it's free and open source. So, Which brings us to another open aspect, uh, because you're the associate editor of RopenSci. What is RopenSci and what's your role there? So our OpenSci, uh, at its core, maintains the suite of R software. And their primary aim of those packages are to lower the barrier for researchers working with scientific code and data. The way they do this is through a software peer review system. And this is conducted by a community of researchers, users, and our developers. Through that, the community that has developed around this peer review system is sort of just as important, if not more important, than the software they curate. Anyone involved in the review process becomes a member of the RopenSci Slack, which is an amazing place to ask R-related questions if you're stuck. Yeah, we've got a public-facing forum where anyone can ask questions. And then another really great output, in my opinion, is our dev guide, which is our developer guide. And that is actually a great source of information on best practice for developing our research software. In terms of what I do, so... I help facilitate the review process. Well, not just myself, the, all the editors do. And that involves from sort of pitching in when we're trying to evaluate whether a package is in scope or not. So one thing I'd say is that um, up to now, we've tried to focus only on um, anything that helps with a research cycle, except for analysis. There is a project that's been funded to also have like a statistical strand as well. 
So we're moving into that. But up to now, you know, we've had to make sure that uh, the packages we accept are, are within the, the sort of scope we've defined. Editors do is some initial checks on a submission, and then we find reviewers and we help with the tracking of a package through the review process. And if there are questions, help out throughout the review process as well. And then we, we all are always trying to make the process better and, and more helpful for, for everyone involved, really. So we'll, we'll constantly co- contribute, if not content ideas to the uh, dev guide. One thing I'd mention is actually what uh, uh, one of our other editors, Noam Bross, if people are interested, he gave a really great overview of Arab and Sai, you know, what it is, where it's been and where it's going. His um, recent Use R 2020 keynote, and that is on uh, YouTube. So if anyone is interested, they can have a look at that. The software peer review, how does this tie in with publications? The software peer review is of um, reviewing our packages, right? But there are packages addressed towards researchers. It is really interesting concept. We have two reviewers per package. The job of the reviewers is to evaluate the package firstly against the sort of general best practice described in our dev guide. But then they'll move on to also evaluate it for functionality. Is it fit for purpose? Could it be improved in any way? Are there other uh, things that it could do that could really help researchers? Some of the interesting aspects that I find in the uh, Arab Inside peer review is that, firstly, once a, a package is determined to be in scope, it can't be rejected, right? It's, it's going to be accepted. But it just remains under review until reviewers are satisfied. So that gives a different flavor to it. It's also conducted openly in a GitHub issue. The reviewers, they're often potential users of the package, not, you know, I don't know, sometimes in academic peer review, you get competitors <laughs> evaluating your paper. It's sort of a different incentive. So I find, yeah, I find that their incentives of our open side reviewers are really to help the package be the best it can be. And that just makes for a much sort of collaborative review process. What I found is it's actually really great value for uh, reviewers as well. When I did my first review, I'd never actually built an R package before. That really helped me learn about R packages, but feel a bit more confident about starting to develop my own. So, um, so yeah, I'd, I'd actually highly recommend reviewing. Uh, you mentioned a software reproducibility a little bit earlier, and that's a huge subject. And in fact, you yourself gave a keynote at the UserR 2020 online conference and where you said you're really surprised that no one's checking anything. And I guess that this ties in with your work of software peer review. So how do you think we can make software more reproducible? Firstly, actually, it doesn't come from my work in software peer review. It actually comes from jobs that I had outside of academia. One job, one position was as a quality assurance auditor for a uh, contract research organization. So their research is uh, regulated by international legislation. So basically, if they get it wrong, they get sued. In that job, we, we had to go into the labs and inspect the work as it was being carried out. And then we'd have to 
audit the raw data to the final reports. And then we also had to report all our findings back to management. So, um, you know, that, that job taught me about incentives and, and also that human errors can be very pervasive, even in this highly standardized and uh, regulated research environment. You know, you, you need to be checking stuff. I had another job where um, I worked for an extreme sports equipment distributor. Uh, and at the time, I was quite good at Excel, so I ended up doing a lot of their cost of sales and their price list. So the repercussions for something going wrong, they came back quickly and directly to me. So that's why when I came back to academia, I found it kind of strange and slightly worrying that you know most of our focus was on checking the papers, but with no mm. real regard for checking the raw materials behind the paper, like the, the code and data. It feels like we should be doing more of this this checking. So, um, and indeed, I remember one of the quotes that's stuck in my mind. I think I know which one. Papers are advertising. Uh, well, it's the scientific content, but it's the advertising of the scientific content rather than you know the kind of software reproducibility. And I think that's a really nice catchphrase. Could you expand a little bit more on that? The quote is that the paper about a computational result is not the actual scholarship but it's the advertising, but it's that the complete computational environment and the code and data that generated the result that is the actual scholarship. It's talking about computational results. So perhaps, you know, a few decades before, maybe we weren't all using computers as much, but certainly now so much of our research involves computation that it seems bonkers not to be expanding, you know, what, what we're uh, checking and archiving and, you know, everything's still focused on the paper. We're, we're beyond that now. We need to be thinking about the raw materials more. So this was actually kind of the idea behind the Reberhack project that um, I've been working on as part of my SSI fellowship. Reaper hacks are sort of one-day reproducibility hackathons. Uh, leading up to one of these events, authors can submit papers with links to their associated code and data. And then on the day, participants try and reproduce the paper from that code and data. And then they, they'll record their experiences and feed them back to the authors. So, so it's kind of like a, a sandbox for practicing reproducible research, both for authors for creating these materials and for potential users uh, of such materials. So the most common reason for failure that we see is either lacking documentation. I think that's actually the lowest hanging fruit. Even if you don't offer that up in an automated way, if you at least list it, people know what, what they might need to go and install to run your uh, analysis. And really, it's, it's not specifying a computational environment insufficient detail. That's the second sort of most common reason for non-reproducible research. But that's actually a relatively uh, short list and easy to rectify, isn't it? Sort of. Well, that's the most common. But, but actually, I think we're kind of doing this reviewing process. It seems a little bit background. I mean, it's a fun and instructive activity, but really what I think is more important at the minute is to actually really be very specific and define what a reproducible paper entails. Uh, and that's probably will differ depending on the given language or a given domain. And actually, I think this is where 
RSCs can really help. You know, it feels like if you want to review something, especially if we want this to become a more formal part of our publication, then we need to be explicit about what we expect and what what we're going to be reviewing against, right? Otherwise, it's kind of unfair. But more importantly, once we have defined what this is going to be, then it's much easier to teach and it's easier to... Um, develop tools and templates and automation that make it easier for researchers to sort of create these more reproducible projects. For me, that's the key to getting researchers to work more reproducibly. Before we go on this topic, though, one thing I did want to add is that we're now we're talking about computational reproducibility at the minute. Right. And that's sort of the lowest, the, the minimal standard. We can rerun the same code and get the same results. In time, I think this will be the automated. I think what's more important really is to be checking whether the code is doing what we think it's doing, right? Is the code doing what the paper says it's doing? That's, I think, more critical. There seems to be a strong move towards moving away from the paper-only aspect to checking the software, integrating that with the paper review, integrating that with what we now have as a traditional way of communicating science. One aspect that I find quite interesting is the repro hack. And the repro hack is a great way of checking software, but it also can have the danger of being very adversarial, right? So you have people who try to find faults in other people's code. How do you ensure that this becomes more collaborative rather than adversarial? Actually, the repro hack experience is very collaborative. It's in our code of conduct. And when we begin each event, that's something we make a big deal out of. There's a lot wrong with our public uh, publication system. And the authors that have submitted these papers for us to work with are not it, you know. So we're all here to learn. We're all here to make research better. And so we find that that's normally enough. And, and it is a sandbox, right? This isn't a, a formal part of the, the publication system, if you like. So it, it is explicitly a space where people can practice. I think we do manage to get that across. I don't think we've had any complaints yet about not very friendly comments or in the feedback. That's a, that's a good point, and we try and stress it really strongly. That's a nice wrap-up, Anna. One question that I have, you've been a Software Sustainability Institute fellow since 2019. We are now having a new round of fellowships being chosen. So um, how has this fellowship shaped your work? This is uh, the Software Sustainability Institute. I should probably start by thanking them for my job because they were instrumental in the whole RSC movement here in the UK. The fellowship, so that, yeah, that continues to provide really good opportunity for RSC-minded researchers to interact with each other and build networks and build capacity in academia. I've met a lot of great people through participating in the program, um, especially through their yearly collaborations workshop. But, you know, most importantly, the support from the SSI and pushing forward the Reaper Hack project has been invaluable. Alex Nenadich from the SSI was uh, inviting me to do the, the first Reaper Hack as part of my fellowship at the Carpentry Connect Manchester. And that sort of snowballed into, you know, developing a core team and blah, blah, blah. so it's great for meeting people. If people have uh, interesting ideas about projects, it's an excellent way 
to uh, to, to get some support and get an uh, interesting project started. We've now reached the end of the podcast, and I usually end with two questions. And the first one is, if you imagine yourself far ahead into the future, what do you think a successful career as research software engineer would look like to you? Okay, this is personally for me, right? It is personally for you, indeed. If I've been part of helping, even in a small way, to sort of make it easier for researchers to produce robust, reproducible computational research, uh, and if I've sort of helped to normalize uh, reviewing of the what we've talked about, the real workhorses of modern science. Yeah, if, if I've managed to contribute to these efforts, I will be satisfied. And uh, finally, what do you like to do when you're not programming? At home, I like cooking a lot and listening to a lot of podcasts. I've always been really into music. So luckily here in Sheffield, we, we have a great live music scene. Otherwise, I really like to be outdoors. So again, in Sheffield, we're blessed with the Peak District National Park at our doorstep. So it's got plenty of great hiking and mountain biking and wild swimming. And of course, if you move to Sheffield, you're going to get into climbing, whether you like it or not. It's kind of the Sheffield is a bit of a mecca for uh, climbing with a long history in it. So, yeah. Well, thank you very much, Anna. That was such an exciting interview and uh, such a pleasure talking to you today. And all the best for the future. Thank you so much, Peter. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and we would like to see you again in future. If you like this episode, it'll be great if you could leave a review wherever you download your podcasts from. And with that, goodbye.